So we've been looking at the Bible through the lens of this scapegoat theory. Uh, maybe better said, uh, the Bible has been looking at us through the lens of scapegoat theory because we are a scapegoating and scapegoated bunch, aren't we? We human beings, uh, that is. Uh, five concepts that constitute the witch's brew of uh, scapegoating and, and we're blissfully unaware of these five. Individually we're aware of them, but how they fit together. So I don't mind reviewing them once again to start the series, especially, or start the sermon since you've been, some of you have been gone. It's, uh, the five concepts are imitation, desire, rivalry, contagious violence, which is hard for my finger to come up, and, uh, and scapegoating. Those, those are the five concepts to understand and how they connect in order to understand scapegoat theory. So just quickly run through. We do imitation on steroids, we human beings. We not only learn language uh, by the simple uh, process of imitation, but we also imitate at a, at a deeper intentional level, the level of desire. Our desires are imitative. We desire what others desire because they desire it. And this leads to rivalry. Uh, and then as rivalries multiply, and intensify in human communities because of the way we do desire. We have more intense rivalries. We are prone then, uh, compared to other species, to what's called contagious violence. Um, the first and most deeply embedded mechanism that we humans have for deal offloading this violence so we don't, you know, destroy ourselves and end as a species is scapegoating. So there you have it. Imitation, desire, rivalry, contagious violence, and scapegoating. Uh, scapegoating, what's that? Well, that's uh, when groups are threatened by this period of increasing rivalry, leading to more conflict and more anxiety in groups. They unconsciously, and it's, it's an unconscious process. It's like a, almost an automatic process. People aren't aware of doing this. Everybody get, gets caught up in it. They unconsciously project all those multiplying conflicts. Projection is just something's in me and it's bad. And so instead of acknowledging it in me, I see it in other people, you know. So we unconsciously project all our multiplying conflicts on a single vulnerable individual or minority group, which is then accused of various bad things to justify either isolating, excluding, or even in, in you know, more archaic settings, killing them. Uh, and this, this uh, expulsion does a wonderful thing. It brings in a remarkable, almost magical sense of peace to the group that's left behind, but the peace is temporary. Um, and, and, you know, as anxieties grow again down the road, there's another scapegoat that it's fine. So it's a recurring mechanism in hum human societies. Jesus, as em Emily last week, if you weren't here for Emily's last week, last Sunday I watched it online because I was in New York City at the River Church, our sister Blue Ocean Church, which is an awesome church. It's, it's really diverse. I've, I was there before, but it's even more diverse now and a good strong African-American presence and Asian presence because Charles Park is Asian and it was like, this is an awesome church. Uh, and I talked on, guess what, scapegoat, the scapegoat mechanism. But uh, what I missed last Sunday, and, and I uh, made up for it a couple of days ago, Emily's sermon on Jesus as the ultimate scapegoat was really, it's, it's really 
choice prime good stuff so uh, t take a look at it if you didn't if you didn't see it last Sunday but Jesus is the culmination of God's project with it with the Jewish people to unmask and ultimately unravel and uh, demystify the scapegoat mechanism to rob it of its power so in his death the scapegoat mechanism is fully exposed the death of Jesus he's the scapegoat in rising from the dead the innocence of all victims is proclaimed and then Jesus the risen Jesus is calling all humanity to leave the scapegoating mob wherever it forms and this is Christian conversion like this is what conversion is all about we're not talking about some like side issue when we're talking about scapegoating because the two major models of conversion in the New Testament are who it's Peter and Paul and both are recovering scapegoaters Paul is a, the instigator version of the scapegoater which is usually just a few people in the community but Peter is the more representative scapegoater because he's part of the part of the mob the scapegoating mob who acquiesces who just goes along with it and if Peter can do that the lead disciple of Jesus that that's like a, a signal from the gospel that we can all we're all very much capable of that acquiescence role in the scapegoating mob so today we're going to look at how Jesus draws Peter away from his place in the scapegoating mob and he does it so like with such genius and tenderness it's uh, our text is going to be John 21 so if you've uh, you know got a smartphone Bible you want to turn to John 21 um, that would be well worth your while we're building this on, on what I started uh, two weeks ago I started taking a look at Peter as a recovering scapegoater uh, and and the scapegoating moment when he participated in the scapegoating mob in John chapter 18 so we're gonna be in John 21 but our background is John 18 so just to rehearse what happened because it's so connected in John 18 it's the it's the night when Peter is or uh, Jesus is arrested remember Peter assaulted the the um, the guy who was coming to arrest Jesus cut off his ear well Peter follows along with John and, and goes to, uh, to where Jesus is being interrogated at the high priest's residence. And he's warming himself around a charcoal fire that was built by the police officers there and the household servants of the high priest. When a woman recognizes him as the one who knows Jesus, and in the text it tells us this woman was related to the guy that Jesus had just cut the, the guy's ear off. So this is putting Peter in a, in a dicey spot. And, and that woman kind of calls him out as he's standing warming himself around the fire. The text emphasizes three times that Peter is warming himself around the charcoal fire. And three times Peter denies knowing Jesus. So this is telling us the easiest way to be part of a scapegoating mob is to distance ourselves from the scapegoat while or refusing to stand up for the scapegoat and this is how most of us participate in scapegoating mobs again unconsciously without being aware of it often um, and I don't want to put too fine a point on this but from a New Testament perspective participating in a scapegoating mob is the worst thing we do it's the worst thing we do it's often not the thing we feel guilty about we don't even recognize that we're doing it we focus on some other fault or sin that we think is the worst thing that we do no 
participating in the scapegoating mob is the worst thing that we human beings do. Uh, Paul referred to his role as, as a scapegoater and said, I am the worst of sinners. It's the worst thing we do. So today we're looking at part two of Peter, um, how Jesus kind of re-engaged Peter after he participated in the scapegoating mob. So we're in, we're in John 21. Um, just got him to look up here. Uh, Jesus has been raised from the dead. And this is that weird period where it's before the ascension where Jesus kind of goes into heaven and, and isn't seen again physically by the church. And the church goes off and does its thing in the book of Acts. But it's, it's between the resurrection and the ascension. And Jesus is just like popping up and appearing to disciples for periods of time and having interesting interactions with them. And this is, I think, the longest of the resurrection appearances in, in the gospel. So it's, it's super important. Um, so think about the disciples. They, they, they're beginning to believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. There have been a few of these appearances, but uh, they don't really understand what it all means and what they're supposed to do. So they're in this kind of in-between space. Peter and six of his uh, fellow disciples are just hanging out. It's kind of like they're just, they don't know what to do. They're just hanging out. And what do people do in a culture like that? Peter, you know, Peter says, I'm going fishing. You know, up north, you see those signs in the shops, going fishing. And that's Peter, he's just going fishing. And the other people just follow along. So there's seven guys in a boat. They're out all night. They catch nothing. This is a trope in the, in the Gospels. This, this has happened before. They're out fishing all night. They catch nothing. It happens again. A man calls to them from the shore while they're in the boat early in the morning. Friends, no fish? And they're like, yeah, no fish. Thanks, you know. Um, and he says, try casting on the right side of the boat. And they do. And they haul in this massive catch. And then John, who's in the boat with Peter, says recognizes in the, through the mist in the distance that it, it's the Lord on the shore. It's like this is another of those awesome, wonderful appearances. And then Peter, uh, it says he puts on his cloak, which is interesting. I guess you had to be there. But he puts on his cloak. He's been fishing naked, I guess. He puts on his cloak, jumps in, and he swims to the shore. And then the others follow, follow behind. They're taking care of the boat and the fish and all that. And when they arrive at the shore... They see a charcoal fire with fish and bread baking on it. And Jesus says, come and let's have breakfast. You know, you just want to feel what that's like. I mean, just picture yourself. You're like, you're out with six other guys. They're all naked, I guess. <laughs> you know, they're out fishing. It's, it's cold on the, on the freshwater, you know, Sea of Galilee. You haven't caught anything. You've got to be starving. You're fishing because you want to you catch some fish to eat because it's not like Whole Foods is right around the corner with farm-raised salmon available for everyone. And they've got their Costco card and all that. They're hungry. You know, they're, 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 they're feeling bad. They get to the shore. It's Jesus, and there's a charcoal fire early in the morning, and there's fish on the fire, and there's bread baking on the fire. And that's like, oh. You just have to feel that to understand what's going on here. After breakfast, Jesus and Peter have what is their first recorded conversation 
after Peter's threefold denial in John 18 around that other charcoal fire in the courtyard of the high priest, right? So let's pick up the, pick up the story in, in uh, John 21, verse 15 to 19. When they finished eating, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus asked the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon re replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. He asked a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He replied, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I assure you that when you were younger, you tied your own belt and walked around wherever you wanted. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and another will tie your belt and lead you where you don't want to go. He said this to show the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. After saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. So, I want to focus on, on three aspects of this thing today and we'll read some more of it that's just one section the three aspects we want to look at are the three questions and what that was all about that we just read uh, then we're going to look at the rivalry between John and Peter because Jesus addresses that a little bit later um, and then we're going to finish by taking another look at the significance of that charcoal fire so first those three questions um, and I'm, I'm going to offer a perspective that's a little different than what you might might have heard before so obviously the three questions harken back to the threefold denial, right? Uh, around that other charcoal fire when the woman said, do you know him? And Peter said, I don't. And then a little bit later, he says, wait a minute. I, I swear, don't, don't you know him? And he says, I don't. And a little bit later, a third time, are you sure that you don't know him? And Peter's like, I swear to God, I don't know the man. But low point. We think about it from Peter's perspective and Peter getting restored and that's for sure valid. But think about this and Emily brought this out um, last Sunday and it got me thinking about this text. Jesus was a scapegoat and the worst pain a scapegoated person feels is not the pain of the angry accusers accusing. It's the pain of the friends standing by saying nothing or just going along. So, you know, it's, it's, it's that position where I talked earlier about, you know, uh, when I was young and I, and I was newly married and my father-in-law, I was in, on grid standing with him and Stan, he would tell these stupid racist jokes. It was a, he was a man of his time, eventually stopped that. But in the early days of that, when I was just 18 years old and newly married and not on good footing, I just, I, I just went along with those jokes. I didn't call him on it in the moment, you know, because I was afraid because of the charcoal fire. And, and you know, that's when you're the scapegoated. It's, it's your friends disappointing you by not standing up for you that is the real hurt and the pain. And, and as Emily said, the key for scapegoaters to renounce their scapegoating is to see the humanity of their victims, which is always obscured by the contagious dynamics of the scapegoating mob. 
just like nobody stops and thinks about these are real human beings that we're accusing and that we're organizing around and that we're excluding. The humanity of the victims is always obscured in the witch's brew of scapegoating. This may be why the resurrection appearances, those strange times when Jesus, the risen Jesus appears to his disciples before he's ascended, why the resurrection appearances counterintuitively in general and this one in particular are striking in their emphasis on the humanity of Jesus. You would think, you know, Jesus is risen, he's entered his glory. They'd be emphasizing the divinity of Jesus. But all those resurrection appearances, Jesus appears in a very human, accessible to other human beings form. Beginning with Mary at the tomb on Easter morning. And she mistakes the risen Jesus for what? For a gardener. He's just like, she, her first impression of him, he's just an ordinary human being. Or in Luke 24, the two disciples on Sunday evening, the first Easter, resurrection day, they're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus and a, and a fellow traveler comes along and, and they don't realize it's the risen Jesus. He's just a fellow traveler. He's just a human. Or, or when Thomas was shown the wounds in his side, you know, in his feet. It's like he's a human. He's a vulnerable human who still bears the scars of his scapegoating injury in his bodies. This Jesus calls them from the shore with the word friends. And then he sits around a charcoal fire sharing breakfast with them like friends do. The whole scene is emphasizing the humanity of the risen Jesus. So yes, Jesus is giving Peter a chance to reverse his threefold denial with a threefold assertion of love, and that certainly was part of it, but it's also possible that Jesus in this questioning is in a sense showing Peter a different wound than the ones he showed Thomas. You know, the wounds on his side and his feet, the external wounds. What he may be doing here is showing Peter the emotional wound that Jesus suffered. When Peter, just a little bit outside, you know, Jesus was being interrogated in the high priest's courtyard and just outside was Peter. It's possible that Jesus actually heard his good friend Peter denying that he knew Jesus. And, and it could be that Jesus is revealing this emotional wound to Peter. Um, Jesus may need reassurance three times of Peter's love as Peter needed three times to be able to say, I love you when he had previously denied him. There's something like really deep and intimate going on between Jesus and Peter and it's as deep and emotional for Jesus perhaps as it was deep and emotional for Peter. You know, when we participate in the scapegoating mob, and this is just something we do, whether as instigators or more likely as ones who acquiesce to the will of the mob with our passivity and silence, we're hurting Jesus. It's, that's something for us to feel. We're hurting Jesus who represents all victims of scapegoating in all places, in all times. So it, it, it comes down to a very personal thing. 
So let's take a look at um, the second thing we wanted to look at here, which is Peter and John's uh, rivalry, which I think is, is kind of humorous. Um, let's remember where we're at in scapegoating theory. Scapegoating has its roots in what? In imitative desire that spawns and intensifies rivalry. Peter and John were no doubt rivals. Um, Certainly the churches that um, identified with Peter, uh, the church in Rome probably identified with Peter, the church in Ephesus probably identified with John. They call this the Petrine and the Johannine communities that were part of bringing the gospel of John together when it came together, you know, sourced in, in witnesses that came from John and Mark's gospel sourced by Peter, it was thought. But these churches may have been in rivalry when this gospel came together. Think about it. John refers to himself in the gospel as the disciple Jesus loved. You get the impression from John that Jesus had a special affection for John. Jesus doesn't go around saying, I have a special affection for John. John is my favorite. John, the gospeler, <laughs> reports that Jesus had a special affection for him. John and Peter was selected by Jesus as the leader of the apostles in some fashion. And John was part of like the top three, but Peter was like the lead of the of the top three. That just sets them up for rivalry. And sure enough, in the Gospels, there's all sorts of indications. I mean, John and Peter were friends. They were buddies. They, there's a lot of John and Peter did this and John and Peter did that. But, you know, we can be rivals with our friends. In fact, that's a very likely candidate for rivalry is with your friends. I've been reading this um, uh, series of novels called the Neapolitan Novels by Elaine Ferrante. Let me know if you've heard about them. Oh, please, somebody. It's like the hot new author, you know, Elaine Ferrante, and it's, and it's tracing the, the two women and their friendship from uh, childhood to late adulthood, over four novels. The name of the first novel is My Brilliant Friend. And it's all about rivalry and um, imitative desire and the way it affects a friendship over a long period of time. This is a great set of novels if you want to read it, The Neapolitan Novels by Elaine, Elena Ferrante. So, friends can be rivals. On Easter morning, Peter and John are running together to the empty tomb. But John, who is the source of John's gospel, says the other disciple, that's his term for himself, outran Peter. You know, I was a runner in high school and I wanted to be first. And, you know, John just happens to mention that he outran Peter, who was a little bit older, a little bit slower. In John 18, when Peter denies knowing Jesus three, three times, how do we even know that happened? Because Peter's friend John was with Peter. And he knew the priests and he got in and he was kind of safe. And he watched this whole thing and then he tells us the story. How do you feel if you're Peter and at your lowest moment and your friend John tells the story to the whole world about your worst moment? There's a little rivalry going on with these guys. The gospel of John, think about it, ends with Jesus addressing rivalry. 
This is the end. This is the last thing that happens in the Gospel of John except a few little things that, that uh, the Gospeler says at the end, like two or three sentences. So let's, let's, let's read this part. John 21, verse 18 to 23. I'm very happy that I rem remembered that my glasses were on my head and I didn't look for them in front of you all. Uh, let's, let's pick it up. Let's pick it up with that third, um, that third, do you love me? Just so we get a feel for it. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I assure you that when you were younger, you tied your own belt and walked around wherever you wanted. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and another will tie your belt and lead you where you don't want to go. Maybe Like you'll be crucified. Peter, by tradition, was crucified hanging upside down, I believe, in Rome. Um, he said this to show the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. After saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Then what happens next? Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. This was the one who had leaned against Jesus at the meal and asked him, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw this disciple, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Jesus replied, if I want him to remain until you come, what difference does that make to you? Follow me. Therefore, the word spread among the brothers and sisters that this disciple wouldn't die. However, Jesus didn't say he wouldn't die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what difference does it make to you? This is the disciple who testifies concerning these things and wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus said many other different things, blah, blah, blah. Ends the gospel. So, Remember, in the boat, in the scene that begins John 21, John was the first to recognize Jesus. It's the Lord, but Peter was the first to jump in and actually get to Jesus, you know, contra what happened on Easter morning when John was there first. Then Peter and John go for a walk after breakfast for some one-on-one -on -one time. You know, I mean, if, like, if you're around a Barack Obama, getting one-on-one -on -one time with the man is like, you've got to believe all the people in the White House staff are just there comparing notes. I just had some one-on-one -on -one time with Barack today. We were in the office and he pulled me aside and wanted me to get, pick my brain on something. And, you know, one-on-one -on -one time with the master, that's like, whoa, that's big, that's happening. How did John feel about that? Now, immediately, after Jesus says to Peter, follow me. This is like the final words to Peter. What does Peter do? He turns away from Jesus to focus on John and then he asks Jesus, what about him? How is he going to die? Jesus is he's pissed again. He's like, if I want him to remain until I return, what's it to you? Follow me. I was like, get the message. Follow me. It's about me. It's not about him. Jesus understands that rivalry leads to scapegoating. Rivalry leads to scapegoating. The community that is formed by renouncing scapegoating, leaving the scapegoating mob, that's what the, that's what the Jesus community is composed of, people who left the scapegoating mob. That community has to renounce rivalry as well. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. Stop judging, no contempt, forgive, no vengeance, serve one another. It's like, a, it's like a diatribe against rivalry in our relationships. I think maybe we have a hopeful hint in the text that John and Peter 
got some distance and perspective on their rivalry. One, this is just kind of a humorous thing. To, this is like older guys kind of realizing when they were young they were in this intense rivalry and they're looking back on it. Just the fact that John in his gospel is naming the rivalry, kind of showing how ridiculous it is. I mean, think about it. John, after all, gains an advantage over Peter if Jesus, in fact, said, John will remain alive until I return. Right? Peter's going to die, and then John's going to remain. And he's going to remain until Jesus returns. That's quite an honor for John. But it's John who reports. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers and sisters that this disciple would not die. But Jesus didn't say he wouldn't die. He only said, if I want him to remain, until I, uh, remain alive until I re uh, uh, return, what's it to you? So what John is doing in the text is he's tamping down the rumor that gives him a leg up with Peter, his rival. So they're, they're dealing with their rivalry in a healthy way. So, but this is what we have to hold in mind. Rivalry leads to scapegoating. If we want to nip scapegoating in the bud, we have to be aware of our tendency for rivalry and name it and see it and laugh at it and get some perspective and distance on it. You know, rivalry, it's, no one admits to rivalry, but it works like this. Rivalry is that thing that makes us rejoice at the misfortune of other people sometimes even who are our friends. We would never admit this, but it's like, and we mourn their successes and we kind of rejoice at their misfortunes sometimes if we're in rivalry with someone. We need a different culture in the church. It's a rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn culture. And you can only have that kind of culture where it's okay to share your weaknesses and struggles as much as you... Uh, Share your, your, um, your successes. Like the church is not Facebook, you know. The church is not Facebook. Uh, there's room for, for, you know, hey, this great thing happened to me. I'm excited about it, you know. Rejoice with those who rejoice. But we can only rejoice with those who rejoice if we mourn with those who mourn. And we can only mourn with those who mourn if we have a culture where it's okay to just cry if it's okay to say I'm having a bad day if it's okay to say I'm struggling if it's okay to admit weakness I think I watched online last week and uh, and the um, Mike who gave the uh, testimony it was it was awesome he was just talking about how he struggles with 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 doubt and so many of us who struggle with doubt are like oh, I guess it's okay to struggle without that's the culture we need to be not a scapegoating mob. Finally, back to the charcoal fire. I think I'm going long on this. But this is, this is I'm enjoying this. That doesn't probably help, but I'm unpacking some stuff here. Um, back to the charcoal fire as we close. Remember, John 21 here, this is the first conversation between Peter and Jesus since Peter was warming himself around that charcoal fire in the courtyard of the high priest when he denied Jesus three times. So that, that first charcoal fire represents the warmth of community that, that woos us, that entices us, that warmth. Um, it's the warmth of that community as the community is organizing into a scapegoating mob. 
why don't we leave the mob just as a matter you know why don't we just call it out you know every time you know you're in a vulnerable position with your family and someone in the family tells a racist, racist joke why don't we call it out all the time why don't we leave the mob we don't leave the mob because we need the warmth of those relationships um, we don't leave the mob because we don't want to upset our parents we don't leave the mob because we hate it to see our friends upset in other words like it's it's all the best reasons that we don't leave the mob we don't want to rock the boat that is our safety in a world of stormy seas that's why we don't leave the mob what's the answer well we have to hear the invitation of Jesus from the shore you know from the kingdom to jump out of the boat where we're in all this rivalry and swim to his shore where he's got a meal ready for us we have to find a sense of intimate community around a charcoal fire with Jesus I mean what do you think the mood was on that fishing boat after being out all out all night with no fish seven naked guys in a boat most are professional fishermen who pride themselves in knowing the spots in the lake if you're a fisherman and a good fisherman it's not just about all the lures and all that is you know your lake and you know where the spots are and you got seven guys at least a few of them are professional fishermen as the hours wear on were they serene or were they arguing over where to go next to find the fish because that's the game where are the fish as the failure mounts like even not the non-professional you know guys are saying well you professionals didn't do it I, I've heard, my uncle fished this lake and I heard this place over here was a good spot and, and you're crazy we're not going over there this rivalry in that boat the whole thing is resolved by a carpenter not a fisherman who's on the shore giving his best fishing advice at the very end you're not really open for good advice when you've had like a nighttime of failure try this right you've got like a chronic headache for a year and people say have you tried Excedrin you know it's like no I know this, this is more than that this is just no fish in this lake the carpenter says fish over there they do it and it works how galling in the logic of rivalry it would be galling how beautiful in the logic of the kingdom of God how beautiful this is a picture of the community that we are invited into by Jesus we're summoned to leave the scapegoating mob to join this community this is a picture of the church in John 21 when we come together to eat the meal right that Jesus prepares for us communion and we have to what we have to leave all our bragging rights behind when we come to this meal we just have to leave all our bragging rights behind we bring our failures with us to this meal and then we bring gratitude for like wow we have this wonderful gift that's when we're ready to be the Jesus community and then together in this state what do we find we find connection with each other and we find connection with Jesus we get the charcoal fire experience and then we don't need 
the charcoal fire of the scapegoating mob. And when the test comes, we're free to pass the test this time instead of failing the test. Okay. As we close for our quiet reflection time, um, I want to just suggest we take a, a little bit of time, like 30 seconds or so, just to prepare for communion by just acknowledging the failures you bring with you just from the past week, not your whole life, you know. Like, I did not have a very productive week. There were so many things I wanted to get done that I didn't get done. I feel like I just frittered away my time for so much of this week. It's like, eh, this was not a good week for me. Uh, so I'm going to bring that fa- sense of failure, you know, to the, to the table. Now just take, take a little bit of time to do that, and then I'll prompt you with a verbal prompt, and then just say, okay, well, what, what have I received as a gift? Um, what have I, have I received as a gift this week? And then we'll be ready for communion. So go ahead and get, get yourself relaxed and comfortable. Close your eyes if you want to. And just take stock of what failures you might be bringing, knowing that everyone else is thinking of a failure that they're bringing to the table today. Okay, enough of the failures now. Just take, take a moment and reflect on what, what is it that we've received just as a, as a gift this past week. Lord Jesus, these are the selves that we bring together Uh, to the table to eat with you today with gratitude in our hearts for all the good gifts that you give us and for your awesome love for all of us. Amen.